0: <clears throat> Let's read Philippians 2.8. And the subject is Christ here. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. That's the key phrase, those three words. Obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The title of this study this morning is Christ's Passive Obedience. And in this study, I'm going to ask and try to answer from the scriptures four important questions about Christ's passive obedience. So question number one is, what is the passive obedience of Christ? Romans 5.19 states that it is by the obedience of one, that's referring to Christ, that many shall be made righteous. The scriptures tell us that Christ's work on this earth was a work of obedience. In Hebrews 10, 7, Christ said to God the Father as he prepared to enter this world in the incarnation, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. And that will was for Christ to become incarnate, to obey the precepts of God's law perfectly, and to suffer and die in the place of his people. Christ's obedience was obedience to God the Father. He said to the Father in John seventeen four, as he came to the close of his redemptive work, I have finished the work which Thou gavest me to do. Now the aspect of Christ's obedience at which we're going to look today is His passive obedience. But what do we mean when we speak of the passive obedience of Christ? Well, here's the definition. Christ's passive obedience was... His voluntary submission to the penalty required by God's law for the transgressors of its holy commandments. The law of God that Christ obeyed consists in two parts. It's important that we know these as we think about his passive obedience. First, the precepts of God's law or the commands to be followed and second, the penalty of God's law, the penalty to be executed on those who break that law. Turn with me to Galatians 4.4. 4. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 says that Christ was made under the law and it means that he was made subject to both the precepts and the penalty of the law. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Christ's active obedience has to do mainly with the precepts of God's law, while His passive obedience has to do mainly with the penalty of God's law. His active obedience is His perfect Carrying out of the precepts of God's moral law. You know, he never disobeyed a single one of the Ten Commandments. Not only that, he positively carried out every one of those commandments. That we sometimes call the precepts of God's moral law, which he carried out in his active obedience. His passive obedience is his bearing of the penalty of God's law. Christ's passive obedience has reference to his submitting of himself to the penalty for the broken law as expressed in Ezekiel 18, 4, which says the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Now, I'm seeking here to answer the question, what is the passive obedience of Christ? And in order to do so, I want us to look more closely here at the actual contents of Christ's passive obedience. Suffering and dying make up the penalty for breaking God's law. The contents of Christ's passive obedience then are made up of the suffering and dying of Christ. First of all, his suffering included the terrible physical suffering Connected to his death on the cross. Isaiah 53, 5 and 8 speak of these physical sufferings. Let's turn to these verses. Isaiah 53, and we'll look at verses 5 and 8 here. Isaiah 53, 5 and 8. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now look down at verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people was he stricken. At his illegal trial, the Lord Jesus suffered humiliation when in mockery he was struck over the head with a reed. Turn to Isaiah 52 and verse 14. Isaiah fifty-two fourteen says that this physical suffering was so severe that it disfigured his face. As many as were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Jesus Christ not only suffered in body, but in soul as well. In Matthew 26, 38, he spoke of his suffering in Gethsemane. Let me just read that. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Now turn to Luke 22, 44. Luke 22, verse 44. This says that, in his soul in this soul suffering our lord was in an agony and he sweat great drops of blood and being in an agony he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground this soul suffering and that's not an adequate coverage of it at all but this soul's suffering was so great that it drew from the Lord the prayer that we find in Matthew twenty Let's turn to that. Matthew 26, verse 39. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. As he was dying, the Lord Jesus suffered the loss of his Father's presence. And this is seen in his prayer in Mark fifteen thirty four: My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Let's look at Psalm 89:38 here. Psalm 89 and verse 38. But thou hast cast off and abhorred, thou hast been wroth with thine anointed. That's a prophecy that God the Father would forsake him. At the cross. While he was dying, Christ Jesus suffered the very sorrows of hell. Look at Psalm eighteen five that prophesies our Lord's sufferings. Psalm eighteen and verse five. Eighteen five. The sorrows of hell compassed me about. The snares of death prevented me. Now right over there on the same page or the next page, look at Psalm twenty two fourteen. Psalm twenty two fourteen speaks of both Christ's physical suffering and his soul suffering at the cross. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. Now that describes both sufferings, and who can even comprehend a suffering like that? But the suffering involved in Christ's passive obedience was not just the suffering he experienced in connection with his death. Everything in his earthly life that was distressing Belonged to his passive suffering. Christ's passive suffering speaks of his suffering of every kind, the total of all the sorrow and pain that he endured on this earth as a man. Jesus Christ endured the exact equivalent of the everlasting suffering that all of the elect of all of the ages deserved in the flames of hell. Think about that. The sufferings that all of the elect in all of the ages deserve because of their sins, Christ suffered those in his passive obedience. Well, the other component of Christ's passive obedience was his death. First, his suffering, and second, his death. Uh, in our text in Philippians two eight. The scripture says of Christ that he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. In dying on the cross, the Lord Jesus received the penalty for breaking God's law. Before the foundation of the world, Christ willingly and voluntarily agreed in the everlasting covenant in the Godhead to undergo suffering and death, to lay down his life for his people. And in time, he freely surrendered himself into the hands of his enemies and cheerfully laid down his life for his people. 1 Corinthians 15.3 says, He died for our sins according to the scriptures. 1 Peter 3:18 says that Christ was put to death in the flesh. Let's turn to 1 Peter 3:18. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. He died. That is, his body died, not his soul. The soul never dies. His humanity died, not his deity. It's not possible for his soul or his deity to die. Being an infinite person, Jesus Christ was able to take the whole punishment for all of his elect at one time and to suffer the eternity of that punishment that they all deserved. The death of Jesus Christ was the only thing that could satisfy God's justice. Christ's death. As described in God's Word, was a satisfaction to God's justice, a ransom for many, a propitiation for sin, a sweet smelling savor to God. The law demands no more. God's justice was satisfied, and all the punishment God's law demanded was received in the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. Christ's work of obedience was consummated in his death. When Christ died, he declared in John 19.30, it is finished. So Christ's passive obedience is made up of his suffering and death, his taking the penalty for the breaking of God's law. The cross is a term used in the Scripture for the entire passive obedience of Christ, His suffering and His death. Paul says in Colossians 1.20, speaking of Christ, and having made peace through the blood of His cross. Well, that brings us to question number two. Why is it called Christ's passive Obedience, to speak of the passive obedience of Christ, is to say that the Lord Jesus willingly submitted to his suffering and death. To speak of Christ's obedience as passive is simply to say that he voluntarily and without resisting submitted to the suffering and death that make up the penalty for breaking God's law. What a blessed thought that Christ gave his life voluntarily. He laid it down as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. He submitted without resistance to all this pain and suffering and finally to the death of the cross. It was the will and pleasure of God the Father that Christ do so and he willingly did so turn to John 10 18 John chapter 10 and verse 18. here in John 1018 the Lord Jesus said that he had received a command from the father to lay down his life and he readily and voluntarily obeyed that command No man taketh it from me, my life, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. He was not reluctant to and did not resist being made a sacrifice for sin. His betrayal by Judas was part of his suffering. Being omniscient or all-knowing, thus knowing that the devil had put it into Judas's heart to betray him to his crucifiers, the Lord said to Judas in John 13, 27, that thou doest, do quickly. He submitted to that suffering. In Pilate's judgment hall, Christ's hands were tied and he was presented by the Jews here he was falsely accused of sedition and of stirring up the people against the roman government look at psalm 35:11 psalm 35 and verse 11 christ is speaking prophetically here in 35:11 false witnesses did rise up they laid to my charge things that i knew not they falsely accused him of a plot to destroy the temple at jerusalem look at mark 14:57 and 58 mark 14:57 and 58 And there arose certain and bare false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. The Lord Jesus did not defend himself here. Matthew 27, 26 says that Pilate ordered him scourged or whipped, and he willingly submitted. Look at Matthew 27, 26. Matthew chapter 27, verse 26. Then released he Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now look at Isaiah 50 and verse 6. Isaiah 50 and verse 6. This prophesies that he would be willingly he would willingly submit to this beating. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Next, turn to Psalm 22. We'll look at 7 and 8 and then 13. Psalm 22. We'll start with verse 7. This prophesied that he would be mocked by all of those who passed by the cross. All they that see me, laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that He would deliver Him. Let Him deliver Him, seeing He delighted in Him. Now verse 13. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and roaring and a roaring lion. And yet Christ submitted and did not resist. Matthew 27, 29 says the Roman soldiers made a crown out of some sharp thorns and put it on the Lord's head, hurting him and shaming him, but he did not resist. Think about submitting when they jammed those thorns down over your scalp. Think about submitting to that. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. He didn't say a single word against the sentence of death. That was pronounced against him. Isaiah 53, 7 prophesied this silence as being that of a sheep being led to the slaughter. Let's look at that. I believe we looked at that last week, but let's look at it again. Isaiah 53 and verse 7. Isaiah 53 verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet... He opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. Look at Isaiah 50 while you're there. In Isaiah, Isaiah 50, verses 5 and 6. This says that he willingly and voluntarily submitted to his suffering of the cross in the place of his people. The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. I gave my back to the smiters, and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from the shame and spitting. His hands and his feet were pierced by the nails of his crucifixion as prophesied in psalm 22:16 they pierced my hands and my feet and yet he offered no resistance to this the death of crucifixion was a shameful death so in hebrews 12:2 christ is said to have endured the cross and despised the shame of the cross let's turn to hebrews 12 and verse 2 Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. For this reason, we often refer to Christ's suffering and death as his passive Obedience. Question number three, can Christ's passive obedience be separated from his active obedience? Can Christ's passive obedience be separated from his active obedience? And the answer in a word is no. Christ's passive obedience cannot be separated from his active obedience. His active and passive obedience make up his whole work of obedience on the earth. They make up what the scriptures call the righteousness of God. These two aspects of Christ's obedience can never be separated. They are inseparable. Christ did not obey on one day and suffer and die on the next. His obedience to the precepts of the law and His enduring the penalty of the law ran side by side in His life on the earth. Actually, Christ suffered from His birth to His death. He was born in a stable. He had not where to lay His head during His lifetime. He wept tears of anguish from time to time. He obeyed in suffering, and He suffered in obeying. He also obeyed the will of God from his birth to his death. He actually obeyed even in dying. The doing and dying of Christ meet both the precept and the penalty of God's law. Both Christ's active and passive obedience are essential parts of that righteousness because of which we are justified Before God, we have to have the whole obedience of Christ. To be saved, we have to have both aspects of the righteousness of God his active and his passive obedience, his doing and his dying. You know, if Christ had not had his perfect active obedience, then his death could not possibly have counted for us. Because he would have have been a sinner himself and would have had to obey the law for himself. If Christ had only lived a perfect life, it would have been a good example for us. And his life would have been pleasing to the Father. But his life alone could not have saved us from God's wrath. Because the penalty of the law would not have been paid. Christ's active obedience and his passive obedience cannot be separated but they can be distinguished and we do so only to get a fuller understanding of and appreciation for the righteousness that Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. Finally, this brings us to question number four. Is Christ's passive obedience part of the gospel? And the answer to this question in a word is yes. Our justification requires a perfect righteousness as its basis. Both Christ's active obedience and his passive obedience are parts of the righteousness of God by which we are justified. Now let me give you chapter and verse on that. Look at Romans 1 16 and seventeen. Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and seventeen. Paul the Apostle is writing, and he says, "For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it the gospel." is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein, that is in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. How do we know what the righteousness of God is? It's revealed in the gospel. The gospel tells us about the obedience of Christ in the place of his elect. The righteousness of God includes all that Christ did and suffered to satisfy the demands of God's justice and earn for his people forgiveness of sin and eternal life. The righteousness of God that one must have to be justified is made up of Christ's active obedience and his passive obedience or as we said otherwise, the doing and dying of Christ. We sinful human beings can never endure the penalty of the law for ourselves so as to be justified by doing so. As our surety, Jesus Christ obeyed the precepts and took the penalty of the law for us. Romans 5.19 says that, By Christ's obedience, many shall be made righteous. Let me read that again. Or as by one man's obedience, that's Adam's obedience, one man's disobedience, that's Adam's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one, that's Jesus Christ, shall many be made righteous. It is by faith that Christ's righteousness becomes ours. When a sinner trusts in Christ, the active and passive obedience of Christ, the righteousness of God is imputed to that sinner. It's credited to his account. Turn to Philippians 3, 9. Back to uh, near our text there, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9. The scripture says here, And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. How does that righteousness become ours? It comes when we believe. It's credited to our accounts. It's imputed to us. Romans 10.4 says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. And this means that Christ completely fulfills the law for the believer. He has fully conformed to the law in both respects, as to its precepts and as to its penalties in his active obedience, and in his passive obedience. So I would ask you this morning, are you trusting in the righteousness of God, made up of the active and passive obedience of Christ? Would you do so today? You know, many people have, you know, they think they're Christians for many years and uh, suddenly through the word the Holy Spirit reveals to them they've never truly been saved. I've known preachers that happen to. So have you ever trusted in Christ and his righteousness? If you'll trust in him today, you will be justified by God, declared righteous in God's sight, declared not guilty before God, and given title, To heaven at last. Thank God for the passive obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Next time, the Lord willing, we'll study the exaltation of Christ in Philippians two, eight through eleven. You might want to read that before you come next time. The exaltation of Christ. Philippians two eight through eleven. Let's stand together for our